Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullknight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me are Azil. Hey. And Grail. Hello. We're back, and we're going to wrap up Volume 27 today. It's been nice and cozy to just do three episodes at a time. I think that's been kind of pleasant to slow things down a little bit. It's not as if we're in a marathon at this point, uh, reviewing older Berserk volumes. So I kind of like it. We'll see how it goes. Before we get into Volume 27, though, there's a tiny bit of news. Today is January 30th, which is the last day of the Berserk Exhibitions Tour in Osaka. And it is next slated to go to Nagoya, Japan, later this summer. There's no details yet. The information was literally just announced a few hours ago, so we'll know more about that pretty soon. I'm imagining in the next few weeks on the official Twitter account and on their website, and of course you'll hear it from us as well. What's great about that is it gets us closer to a potential you know, reopening of Japan's borders for foreigners. I want to believe. You know, if it goes another six months, it's, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. Other than that... Um, Koji Mori, who was, of course, uh, one of Mira's closest friends, if not his closest friend. Yeah, definitely uh, his best friend. Yeah. He recently gave an interview about their relationship in a manga mook, which is a magazine book uh, called Kono Manga Gasugoi, which means this manga is great. It's a annual publication that just kind of goes through rankings of manga, and they happen to give an interview with Koji Mori about the, their relationship. So I've just imported it. There's no translations, um, but it does feature some little bit about uh, the little comic that he drew for the Berserk Memorial uh, section of the last young animal, the previous young animal. So it's familiar territory. I'm I'm interested in seeing more of it. Uh, Could get a different slice of Mira's life through his friend instead of directly from Mira. So that'll be interesting once we get around to that. That was one of the most touching tributes in the you know, final release. So I, I really hope we'll get to learn more about it soon. Indeed. That's it. Just those two little blurbs of news. Nothing else is really happening. Uh, I'll go ahead and get started. If that's okay with you guys, any other updates on your fronts? Nope. Nope. Let's go. Cool. We have the last three episodes of volume 27 just ahead of us. So in these, there's a couple things that occur. First is the big reveal of what Ganeshka is capable of. We knew that he had a powerful army that ripped through the continent without any effort. We saw his inhuman army that he's generated with industrialized magic, the Pisasha and the Daka. And now we see that his apostle form is capable of roasting apostles multiple at a time. At the same time, despite him being very powerful, by the end of the sequence, Griffith still has the upper hand. So it's a nice little roller coaster we're taking on here. It kind of teases the power dynamic between Griffith and Ganeshka, which ultimately collides in volume 34 when they're face-to-face. Over on Gut's side of the continent, we finally arrive at the ocean, and we learn about the aftermath of Gut's wearing the armor, what that does to his body. And there's a few more pieces that are set into place for the journey ahead, including a little bit about what's ahead in Elfhelm and Farnese's new role as a witch in training. So, I'll get started with the uh, first episode, uh, Demon God. Silat and the two apostles witness an inhuman battlefield. The Daka and Pishasha are being eviscerated by transformed apostles. Though the apostles are doing well, Ganeshka wonders how long they can keep up this performance, and he challenges them to break through and land a blow against him. 
Irvine responds with a sniper shot from a distance, but it sails right through Ganeshka, who appears from behind them and strikes them down from their perch. In his fog form, Ganeshka towers over the battlefield. Boasting of his power, he says, So proud of what little evil power you harbor within you. Feel the touch of true power. And then he roasts everybody there, Daka, Pishasha, and Apostles, with lightning. Seeing this power from a distance, Silat reconsiders what Rakshas had said earlier about Ganeshka being a demon king. He's now thinking he's witnessing the power of a demon god. Meanwhile, in the Tower of Rebirth, Anna asks Charlotte to call it a night, but as soon as Anna departs, Charlotte returns to her embroidery. She feels a gust of wind, and then a figure appears, silhouetted by the moonlight. It's a very uh, visual feast. Again, this is one of those episodes where lots of good two-page spreads. One of my favorites is right at the very front of this episode is when Locus is in the foreground. There's a lot happening around you. It's very chaotic. But right in the foreground, Locus is just in one slash. You know, you can see a five Daka's head just kind of rolling, perfectly sliced. Mm. And that's kind of gives you our first real indication of what he's like, what his his power is like his apostle style is. There's another one in a, a few more pages when he kind of like, feels like he's like charging up an attack. It's not really what's happening. Like in Zelda, when you hold down attack, right? And then he spins. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you can see little thin slices across the Daka's heads and faces. And then, of course, they are all in pieces in the next frame. Yeah. It's a pretty cool moment. What's interesting is that just like uh, in his human form, his lens can uh, grow in size, elongate itself. So right. I feel like in this case, yeah, he just grows a blade and that's why he can cut like five lines at once or 10 lines of Daka all in a row. So imp- pretty impressive, I would say. Yeah. And it's worth saying that he's got a kind of a dual bladed, dual sided blade thing. I don't know what the name, the proper name of that weapon is. Yeah. I no think idea. Dual bladed <laughs> lens works. <laughs> lance thing. Yeah. Glaive? I guess a double glaive. Is that right? Mm, yeah. Sure. Sure. Not, not sure, yeah. <laughs> Either way, he looks very futuristic, like what we were talking about in the last uh, podcast. Mm. Yep. You see some shots of, uh, I alluded to earlier, roasted apostles. It kind of ups the ante or the stakes for this a little bit because, you know, he's not just bluffing anymore. He really is. He can stand behind the power that he boasts about. You know, he does kill. It seems like he kills apostles here. They're smoking, you know, rotisserie apostles in one particular panel. So. Uh, I also really like the shot from of Ganeshka from far away when Silat's looking at him. It looks like he's towering. The how, how huge he is, despite the distance there. It looks it looks a very cool effect. Yeah, yeah. And and of course, go ahead, Azil. No, I was gonna say. By the way, I think at the beginning you said uh, Silat and the two apostles instead of two tapasas. <laughs> just you're right. I, I meant to say tapas. Just indeed. mentioning that I, I do like the the opening shot uh, of the episode where you see Borkov eating a whole yeah. bunch of dakas, and uh, you, you actually see on the bottom right one apostle got overwhelmed and actually got I don't know if it's killed or badly damaged. So it's interesting that they are not just fucking up the Daka and Pishasha, but they're also suffering some casualties, even before Ganishka gets into the battle. I thought that was interesting to mention. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I noticed that they were actually stabbing him. I thought they were like attempting to, but it wasn't working. Because that seemed to be kind of the atmosphere of this opening few pages is like, yeah, there's a lot of them, but they're also getting mowed down. But you're right. That is That does establish that there's some some uh, injuries on the other side of the battle as well. Mm. 
And yeah, Volkov, uh, we get him named in the, in the next episode, I think it is. But, yeah. you know, we see him here. I think his apostle form should be pretty familiar to people. Uh, I think we see him on that first page and we see him again in the following page, two-page spread. But yeah, he gets named, becomes a real character kind of in these in this in these few episodes. Yeah, it's uh, part of the interesting thing Mira does in that he went back to the Eclipse and he was like, all right, I'm going to be reusing these guys. Uh, and he managed to adapt them. It's, I think it's what we said on the previous podcast. He managed to adapt them, give them weapons, uh, armors, and flesh them out uh, beyond just being grotesque monsters. So that's a pretty cool feat and not necessarily easy to do. And um, yeah, it looks great and works great. Yeah, he gets to use his, his chomping powers some more. <laughs> <laughs> we get to understand a little bit more about Ganeshka's power here. Obviously, we see his apostle form. For the first time here, that's a major thing, right? Is that he is, it's clear at this point, I think, that he's made of fog. Uh, that he is, uh, but he's has no form himself. We see Irvine's arrow sail right through, you know, a visage of Ganeshka. You could say, I guess his, his corporeal form becomes incorporeal when he translates, when he transforms. And then he can be wherever the fog is because he appears first from a distance and then immediately behind Irvine. So that's a pretty mm. cool uh, use of his power, I thought. Yeah, I mean, definitely like the highlight of the episode for me. And that's a very cool episode with lots of cool stuff. But yeah. the highlight would be uh, the reveal of Ganishka's power. And uh, yeah, I think it's we don't know exactly who it works. We don't know if he was like all around the city already and that was just an illusion or if he's just able to transition immediately to his fox self, and so that's that's useless as an attack to him. But in any case, uh, yeah, he can switch size, switch positions uh, as he wants, and also pretty much what he says that as long as they are within that fog in that city, they are like ants in the palm of his hand. So that's a pretty a pretty powerful assertion, and uh, I, I quite like that whole segment where he's uh, teasing them. Right, and you're kind of left wondering, how is Griffith going to, you know, best a guy who can turn into fog? It's really yeah. it's really unique compared to any other apostle. Yeah, for sure. It's implied, but the fog itself is supernatural. And I, I would even go so far as to say, if Ganeshka wasn't here, there would be no fog. So anywhere there is fog, it's basically him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's also what he says. He already says so before uh, in, in the previous uh, few episodes that... As long as they are within that fog in that city, he can see everywhere they are because it's an extension of himself. The details right. we, we don't quite know is uh, what part is what he himself can generate, what part is aided by Daiba and all the Christian uh, magic users have got. Uh, basically, how has he extended his power using uh, magic and how much is his own just natural power he just got from the God Hands? We don't know that, but we also don't necessarily need to know it. Uh, just as long as right. it's cool, it's cool. Yeah, just wanted to draw a line between that he can manipulate fog as a medium versus him being the fog. I think it's the latter more than the former. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, especially, I mean, we, we'll get to that uh, later in Britannis where it's a different case, because at that point, mm -hmm. he's more like projecting himself into the cloud and stuff. But in this situation, that's definitely him. And uh, and the fog is him. And yeah, what he's doing is not 
uh, what to say. It's not some kind of uh, he's in another room hidden somewhere. He's definitely there, and that's himself uh, being taking part in the battle. Yeah. I also I think the display of Ganeshka's power, you know, you think of an apostle and you think of someone with big muscles and that they have sharp reaction time, right? And they're very mm. strong. And Ganeshka's power is kind of dramatically different. And I think the timing of showing off an apostle that can basically wield lightning is interesting because we just saw the power of magic uh, from Shirke. And you start to think, what are the what's the possibility space within magic? And now we see an apostle that can wield something that's very like magic, if not magic itself, to do a similar effect. You know, when that big tidal wave hits Enoch, it's a big impactful moment for the series. And that was done by a magic user. And here's an apostle that can wield similarly powerful elemental power just as his natural ability, which I thought that was interesting, upping the ante of what's possible in a battlefield. Yeah. Makes it a great source of speculation for readers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It also builds up a bit on uh, Grunbell being able to fire uh, fireballs, speed fireballs, mm-hmm. uh, as a dragon. That's also, a, I would say, a half step in that direction. And yeah, Ganishka being made up of fog and being able to shoot lightning bolts, uh, that's, uh, that goes uh, a ways further into showing that, yeah, why not? Apostles that mm-hmm. use kind of sort of magical powers, eh, fine. Yeah. <laughs> The last two observations I had are similar, and it's about the embroidery that Charlotte's working on. I thought, first of all, I thought it was funny uh, that, you know, basically her mom sends her to bed. And like a kid (laughs) who wants to continue reading the book, she grabs it and continues doing it, you know, in her bed. I thought that was funny. But also just the embroidery itself, um, it shows a partially occluded moon, just like there's a partially occluded moon on the outside right now. And it's not like Mira shies away from the shape of that moon. He shows it multiple times in this episode and in the coming episodes. And so that particular shape of the moon also being the one that she's embroidering made me wonder if like she had some kind of premonition subconsciously in her dreams and that has manifested itself here for this moment. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was reading these episodes because I know we talked about it in the previous podcast, thinking yeah. about how the embroidery reflects the vision that that she might have had. And she might not even know what it means either. She's just kind of like casting it out as a you know an image on this thing she's embroidering, but it's it, it mattered to her in some way. Um, and the last thing about that I thought was interesting, I always wondered why it was. It's a cool effect that Mira does with Griffith's in the room. The moonlight is behind him. It's casting a shadow on the embroidery that Charlotte's holding over her face. And it's like a funny, cool thing that his shadow lines up with the embroidery. Yeah. I thought it was simply that, but I was thinking about like, why is it that this resonates with me? Why is this such an interesting thing with moonlight shadow on the embroidery? And I thought it's actually kind of symbolic of what Griffith is because he is a physical manifestation of something that has no form. Uh, the femto, right? So this embroidery represents kind of like a figure or a physical thing. And the sh- his shadow is being cast into that form. And I thought that was a very clever. If that was indeed the intent beyond the cool shadow effect, I can kind of see it. You kind of squint. You can kind of see how the ideas align for yeah, that. Yeah, you're going in deep here. Uh, but it's sure. interesting. It's interesting. It's an interesting observation. Uh, I would say it's true. Whether it's what Mira intended, I'm not sure. Versus just being a cool thing to do, right? Uh, 
but uh, it's an interesting observation in any case. As for the the crescent moon behind him, I think it's a way to have a powerful symbolism that's not just a Christian halo. Because if it, were, if it were a halo, it would be a bit, you know, a bit odd. People would be like, is mm. it a reference? So by, by tweaking it, you still have that very powerful symbolism. And at the same time, you know, with the wings and everything. And at the same time, it's, uh, it's clearly not, uh, I mean, you can't just say, well, it's like a Christian saint or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That's all I had. It's a beautiful episode. I really think it's, it's one of them. Again, there's a couple episodes in this sequence of Wyndham that just mentally always live in my head, as you would say these days, rent free. Right. <laughs> this is one of those episodes for, and for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it's uh, it's honestly very cool. I I love uh, Irvine shooting the arrow, uh, Ganeshka saying Mudayo, and then Kozakashi as he you know smites him literally, and you see mm-hmm. them being blown off, and Irvine does a little jump. He's the only one who doesn't get just blown away and jumps away, and he actually does the exact same jump uh, later in the series when the uh, cockatrice. Uh, spits its, uh, oh. <laughs> you know, brass at him. The exact yeah. same jump, which is also very cool. Like he, he does that, that jump again. So I, I don't know. And, uh, and <laughs> it's yeah. It's all part of his repertoire. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And those, uh, yeah, those two page spreads are, I mean, just beautiful. Ganishka's shape towering above the city, magnificent. Uh, and I also quite love the exchange he has with Locus. When Locus is like, hmm, are you sure we're, we're failing our goals? And, and Ganishka doesn't get it. And you see that l- tiny wing of Zod, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in front of the moon. And, and that's just cool. That it's just free foreshadowing for the reader to say, hmm, what's going on? And, right. Uh, <laughs> it's just great. It's just great. I love it. Also, from that perspective, it's clear that Locus gets it. You know, he's looking up at Ganishka and in the background there is the moon. Yeah, so he knows that everything's uh, proceeding according to plan, yeah. and uh, and Ganeshka doesn't, and that's pretty that's pretty great. I realized there is one big thing I really should have mentioned. I mentioned it in the summary, but I didn't elaborate. You know, I picked on the one particular line from Ganeshka, saying how um, how there's the other apostles are so proud of what little evil they harbor within them. Uh, feel true power is what he says. So evil power is something that we've seen like very rarely in the series at this point. Conrad mentions it in volume three when he's talking about the sacrificial process where the sacrifice itself allows evil power into your heart. It's the source of apostles' power. I think it's pretty safe to say that. Yeah. We've talked about it a little bit, I think, at this point in the podcast, but we should probably give a little primer about what it is. Have we talked just a little about it? I think I, I must have gone on about it before. I, I don't, I'm trying to remember when it would have been that we would have said it. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. So, but I mean, it's, in short, in short, it is that it's the term that's used that refers to the unique form of power that apostles have. It's called evil power. And the kanji for it, uh, boy, I'm going to have to be spitballing here. It's ma. Like almost 99.9% of the time when a character mentions evil in the series, just evil, it's ma. It's that kanji. And yeah, it does mean... It does mean evil as in the sense of uh, evil power, evil spirit, demonic power, like Majin means a, a demon. Uh, it's different from like the moral conception of evil and good, uh, like somebody's wicked, that would be uh, different. 
Uh, it's a different uh, kanji. So yeah, it does have that specific connotation. And in Berserk, it's used specifically to refer to the powers that Apple Souls receive and that transforms their soul. And uh, because of that, it twists also their physical forms into that of monsters. And of course, makes them cannibalistic and rapey and everything you want. So uh, so yeah, and that goes all the way down to the God Hand, Vortex of Souls, Idea of Evil, uh, the Abyss, everything. But yeah, that's that's a big part. Uh, I would say a big uh, element of the cosmogony that forms Berserk and how things work. Thank you, Ozil, for that. I would I could not off the dome do that as well as you did. So thank you. No problem. But um, this is one of those times where that term, which Azil has alluded to, is kind of always there, it kind of floating in the background to explain how things work in the world. Like Ganishka has pulled that from the background and put it right into the foreground by referring to it. And that happens one more time that I can think of in volume 34 when Griffith says, uh, unleash your evil power. Yeah. Asks them to transform, basically commands them to transform. Mm. But yeah, it's well, it's a little hint about how things work, and it says here. But the, the the purpose of the usage of it here in this episode is Ganeshka boasting about him having more power than the average apostle, and then he demonstrates what he's talking about. Yeah, how that actually happened, why he has more, if he's just boasting, I don't really have an answer for that. Well, I mean, it's it doesn't have to be something that's explainable by an equation or anything like that. It's the same reason why Zod. So much stronger than uh, Wild, oh, yeah, sure. or it's just because he's strong, right? So I, I mean, you could say Zod also like actually cares about fighting, about battle, about being a warrior. So he's got those skills. But beyond that, he's also like he's got brute force and regenerative powers that make him intrinsically uh, stronger than the for, I don't know the chicken guy. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do, but Zod's not the one. Boasting about the number of midichlorians in his body, like <laughs> now. Okay, so now you're upsetting me <laughs> by comparing uh, evil in this case with midichlorians, which is a very stupid uh, Star Wars thing. It's just I don't think it's the same. I mean, Zod here, um, Ganishka here is basically saying he's stronger, and that they are just worms who, how to say got uh, in over the head because they've got a little bit of power and he's just like, I'm going to show you what true strength is and he's just zapping them. I don't disagree. I think it's pretty cool and not just a matter of, well, my power level is over 936. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think it's also worth saying that Mira doesn't ruminate on the quantifying of it either. It's just this one moment, you know, Ganishka is boasting. He's just, he's essentially taunting them by saying they are weak. And small. You're saying you, you think you are strong, watch this. Yeah, pretty and that's much. Basically it. And uh, which is what you would expect. I mean, all of them, they're basically, is, is what, like what Lucas says, they're just monsters talking to monsters amongst each other. So right. <laughs> it's what you would expect, like, and, and of course, he's also uh, like the greatest emperor on the earth. So he's uh, naturally very arrogant. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all of them. And Lucas is also a very proud character. I mean, it's exactly what you should and would expect out of that kind of exchange between these characters. And so I, I'm personally, I love it. I love yeah. that he's just shitting on them and making fun of them. And then turns out he actually got fooled and he gets so pissed off, he zaps the tower. I mean, it's just, yep. it's just great. Yeah. It's very fun. It almost feels like a wrestling, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Like, the heel is like, oh, I'm going to show you. And then the good guy's like, well, good is a relative term in this case with the, you know, Mm -hmm. the switcheroo. It's great. (laughs) Locus is the baby face. (laughs) Yeah, he's got that smooth (laughs) metallic sheen on his face. (laughs) Over to you, Grail. All right. Uh, Next episode is The Sleeping Princess Awakes. The episode begins where the last left off with Princess Charlotte staring at her embroidery, finding a familiar shape behind it to match its silhouette, the shape of Griffith as she once remembered him. As the wind blows apart the curtains of her bed, Charlotte's fantasy seems to come alive. Griffith in full armor, looking even grander than before, stands at her bedside, illuminated by the the not-quite-full moon. Griffith begs her pardon, and Charlotte wonders aloud if she must be dreaming. She admits that Griffith is all she thinks about, whether she's asleep or awake, and she's lost track of reality. Charlotte points out that Griffith's appearance seems excessive even for her, comparing it to a girl's dream where a knight rescues the captive princess in the tower. Even so, she says, with Griffith before her, with the moonlight behind him, she wishes that he won't disappear. Griffith takes Charlotte's hand and lifts a finger that had been pricked by her earlier embroidery. He says the princess who pricked her finger with a needle fell into a deep sleep. There was a story like that. Was this pain a dream or not? And he kisses the tip of her finger. And I have in my notes here, smooth move. Charlotte tearfully (laughs) declares (laughs) that she isn't dreaming and in fact has now awoken from her slumber, embracing Griffith and embracing her role in her personal fairy tale come to life. Meanwhile, poor Anna is hastily woken from her sleep by their unwitting guard, who sends her to Charlotte's side, saying that she was called for. When she arrives, Charlotte instructs her to put put on her cloak and hang on to the bed, telling her not to let go no matter what. uh, Anna, Anna speculates that Charlotte must have had a particularly bad dream. Charlotte explains that Griffith instructed her to do so, and Anna says, that must have been very nice. But <laughs> before she knows it, Charlotte declares, no more sleeping. This is no dream. And the roof of the tower crumbles above them. We immediately cut back to Locus, who calls for his forces immediate- to immediately withdraw, having proven as an effective distraction against the emperor. Volkov, the same apostle who bit guts his arm during the eclipse, as we spoke about earlier, serves as a battering ram, allowing the lancers to make a quick exit, unimpeded by a Looney Tunes-like number of walls. Ganishka is briefly puzzled by the departure until he realizes what has happened, having been fooled by Locus and Irvine, who succeeded in keeping him occupied f- from one direction. Griffith came from the sky where, Gun- uh, where Ganishka's fog didn't reach and snatched Charlotte away from right above his head. The furious apostle rages at this discovery with lightning flashing across the surface of the tower. Meanwhile, Anna and Charlotte are hanging onto the bed as they fly over the wilderness outside of Wyndham. Anna, understandably overwhelmed, decides to tuck herself into bed and pretend everything is a dream. Charlotte agrees that this all does seem very much like a dream, but as she looks up at Griffith sitting above with Zod as they're borne away, she reflects that her finger, at least, still feels warm. The episode ends with a full image of the bed being carried away by Zod under the light of the moon. And there's a lot of moon in this episode. I was just going to point out that... um, between these three episodes that we read for for today, I feel like the moon has taken such a, a big role 
every so often it shows up and Mira's like, look at the moon, look at the moon. Are you looking at the moon? <laughs> and every panel is like, boop, 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 boop. Like, you better be paying attention. So I liked that that was uh, such a big feature. Yeah. And I liked um, I liked the reference to Sleeping Beauty in this one. I thought that was a very kind of clever uh, analogy to what Charlotte was going through and the fact that she's like, he's kind of making her feel like she's awakening from a terrible nightmare mm-hmm. that was presumably the past couple of years, right? And uh, just that that idea, I think it really, uh, you know, resonates like when you go through something terrible and it's almost like a psychological tool where it's like, okay, everything else didn't happen. This is, this is real now. So I just thought that was great. As a reference to uh, the Sleeping Beauty Princess Myth, is pretty cool, but why aren't you talking about the Little Nemo reference when the, on the flying bed? <laughs> oh. <laughs> is that what that was? Oh no, my god, no, I haven't I'm watched just, that movie in such a long I'm time. Just, You're right. Or oh, sorry, Little Nemo is also a book. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just kidding, obviously, but uh, <laughs> I felt like I had to mention that very important connection of the flying bed. But yeah, no, naturally. That's that's very cool. And if I were to mention another smooth motherfucker reference from Griffith, <laughs> is when he says uh, he's sorry for entering through a window again. Again, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is like, yeah. yeah, you know what I'm talking about, baby. Remember last time? <laughs> yeah. So, so pretty, so pretty nice. Yeah, very smooth. Yeah, he was. He was just. He just shows up and killed it in this one. Yeah, well, I mean, he's got, uh, he's aided by Kosaladi now, so it's just, uh, and he's like otherworldly charm. So, uh, before he was just playing by the, the rules of the game. Now he's outside of the rules, outside of the game. So, right. God mode. Yeah. Sleeping Beauty, though, a reference to a fictional story in our world is parallels a, a story of a sleeping princess in this world. It's just it's the rare instance of something from our world being also here. Mm. Yeah, well, I feel like even when you think about the Picard story, for example, it's because in this case, it's not necessarily exactly the same. You know what I mean? It's more mm-hmm. like inspired, derived so I don't know. I would say I, I see what you what you mean. It's interesting. At the same time, it doesn't shock me as something's like, wow, it's never been done before or anything like that. No. Yeah, and again, it's not named. It's not like he's saying uh, <laughs> Disney's Sleeping Beauty or anything. Um, <laughs> he's wow. just referring to thematically the thing of a princess pricking yeah. her finger and falling asleep. That's all he's really doing. So. Yeah, he's establishing the thematic fantasy story thing that's happening yeah, here. Yeah, and right? I must point out that the story of Sleeping Beauty far predates the existence of uh, Walt Disney Corporation. I know. Because, <laughs> I know, because I, I'm just saying so, because I feel like uh, some of our younger listeners might not realize that all of these stories, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, whatever you want... Uh, are not like Disney originals. They're just uh, stories that were in the public domain and that Disney just took and adapted and then made millions from and then copyrighted and trademarked in ways that makes sure. it difficult for others to to do their own spin on it. I'd have a hard time naming something that Disney did create. And I was going to say Lilo and Stitch, but then I was like, I mean, Scully and Mulder were before that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, don't know if they made anything. Even The Lion King is uh, pretty much ripped oh, yeah. off from uh, Osamu Tezuka's work, so yeah. Oh, yeah. That too. <laughs> yeah. If we start talking about the mouse, we're never going to end this episode. Yeah, true. <laughs> and we're going to get uh, 
lawyer schooling. <laughs> <laughs> Cease and desist. When Griffith came back, he, you know, he looks a little different. He looks a little less natural, more supernatural now. And I feel like Mira turned that up to 11 in this episode. Like when he sits on the bed, I mean, dude's got hips and lips <laughs> and his hair is like vavoom. He looks quite feminine in this episode, more than I guess any other episode. He's just laying it on real thick in this episode. Hmm. I don't know. That's just me. I never, it never occurred to me necessarily. I mean, he looks, he looks pretty, right? But uh, he even doesn't really look human. Like he looks like mm-hmm. agreed, kind of an alien, alien basically. Uh, and and so, it's, so it's interesting because uh, whenever characters talk about it, for example, Gus, there's that famous line where Gus says he looks and sounds exactly the same. And I always wondered, is it because his perception is distorted, or or he, does he actually look exactly the same? Uh, and it's just a style that evolved. I always felt like, no, he actually looks similar, but uh, he's been, like, he's different now. He's also worldly uh, on purpose. Yeah. I think it's more like someone that perfectly captured the essence of Griffith in a painting, and then that painting came alive. So that painting mm-hmm. wouldn't look one-to-one like the human being Griffith, but it's like the idea of Griffith yeah. now walking around. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Actually- since you guys mentioned that, I, I neglected to mention the fact that the last time Charlotte saw Griffith, he looked very different. Yeah. And, oh, right. Uh, sure. It all fits into her kind of that fairy tale fantasy. I, I, that, that's at least how I interpreted it. Is that he suddenly comes back, everything's back in place. You know, she can just just uh, start where she left off with him, pretty much. Yeah. From her perspective, it's truly a dream come true because last she saw him. He was in a really terrible state, and I feel like she must have known deep down that uh, it's not the kind of injuries you recover from, uh, you know, without having any any wounds or scars or anything like that. Yeah. So the fact he comes <laughs> like that, it's truly uh, a fairy tale. And uh, again, that fits with the theme of the episode. It makes me laugh because, Walter, you were talking about with his hips and lips. It looks like he got some work done, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> when I say his hips, just to be clear, it's the, the shot when he grabs her hand. Right. And he's leaning on the bed. I mean, those are some hips I'm talking the about. The effect of the armor. But, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like, like the uh, – how to say the uh, birdwing uh, armor effect thing might, might maybe uh, help that effect. Yeah. The va-va-voom. But va-voom, I, the hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's got it all. This is a personal thing, but like I remember on the Hill of Swords when, as a episodic reader at the time, we knew Griffith was back. Uh, We didn't know what he knew, what kind of person he'd be, would he acknowledge his past at all, or would he just focus on the future? And yet the first words out of his mouth on the Hill of Swords are, you haven't changed, or you're the same when he's referring to guts, you know, swing first and ask questions later. Mm. So that's a confirmation that he knows who he is, he knows the past, he knows what his relationship was, he's just simply the essence of Griffith. And here we have another one where he's referring to his past with Charlotte. You know, he's not trying to shy away from that, he's directly talking about who he was and what he did in the past. So I like that Amira establishes that, that mm-hmm. he could have simply said, I'm not going to talk about the past. I'm not going to relate to the past. I am simply me. But he keeps that part of himself. So he really is Griffith. It's not a new character. It's 
the Griffith you knew, you know, it establishes that it's the same person yeah. for everybody that might have been wondering about that. I think it makes sense for it to be like that because the whole point of Femto being their vanguard and not mm-hmm. Ubik or Slan or whatever is that he was someone in the world recently. And so by returning there, he's still known, he's still got a history and he can, uh, continue where he left off, basically. Yep. So I, I feel like that's that's logical in the grand scheme of things. The blood thing, I thought this was very interesting because, I mean, we know that Griffith is evil as Femto, mm-hmm. and Miura knows that, and he's doing something like sucking on blood that is, you know, both kind of creepy, but also... <laughs> sucking on blood. Scene. I think it's supposed to be romantic here, not creepy. I just like the idea of him putting his mouth to her finger going... (laughs) (laughs) It's played out in this way. It's a way that looks sensual. But in a way, he's also just like, "Mm, give me some of that blood. (laughs) He's not not like that. In a way, no, he's not like that. Mm. He's not doing that. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) You you know, it's funny because you're you're depicting him like he's the the Cobra Apostle, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Drinking... Blood in a goblet in a dark and damp room while you're feasting on some <laughs> child's uh, inner thigh. I was thinking or of uh, the demon child in, in Casca. Oh, Eating yeah. The blood from the brand. Okay. I don't know. I don't think. It's not a callback. I'm saying that's, that's, that's what visually made it work yeah. for me. Yeah. I think blood it's. Thing. What, what I found interesting about it is that he, like you said earlier, he references the. Uh, the legend of Sleeping Beauty or the tale of the Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty because she pricks herself with a needle. But it's not like if Mura had been a lazy writer, it would have been, well, I'm going to do something like that. But here it says, well, you pricked yourself and by kissing your finger, I'll show you that I'm warm. And by feeling the warmth, you'll know that you're not dreaming, you're awake. Mm-hmm. So, and the pain of the needle, such a thing. So I found it interesting that he didn't just take that tale, but rather made a passing reference at it uh, just to illustrate his point, which is completely different in this case. So you know what I mean? It's it's a, it's not just taking something, taking a template and following it. It's just mm-hmm. you get a reference, but you do your own thing, and it makes perfect sense in the, the context of what you're doing. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good point. And they kind of get into the discussion of fairy tales as sort of a meta discussion, which makes it even more interesting. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about yet is Anna. And I don't know what it is about Anna. You know, I'm a big fan of Carcass. You guys know that? Anna's great, yeah. I like the everyman kind of characters in in all stories. It's not just Berserk, but... Absolutely. I just like Anna's just like, I'll roll with it attitude here, right (laughs) up until shit gets real. And then she's just talking to Sir Mr. Bed, Sir Bed. Yes, sir, bed. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this poor lady's just trying to do her I job. I told you it's a little Nemo reference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, she she does uh, embody quite well the every woman uh, mm-hmm. type of character. And I, I same as you, I love her, including when they escape from uh, Wyndham uh, in the sewers with the Bakiraka. And in this case... Mm. Just her no-nonsense style and the way mm-hmm. she, she knows her place. She knows she's got to stick by Charlotte, whatever, regardless of the situation, because that, that's how she can survive. So, yeah, love her. And Not that, only that, she genuinely cares for her, I feel like, right? Yeah, yeah. She grows to be like, uh, I would say, an older sister or something. And she's very, she's also very funny. She can make funny faces, uh, that kind of stuff. I think it's also she, something... Yeah. Mira takes pleasure uh, in doing, you know, having her make all these uh, expressions and so on. Well, it's they're very 
uh, unfeminine expressions. He can break that wall. You yeah. Know, that he has to. With Charlotte, she's usually portrayed as beautiful and very feminine. Yeah. And with Anna, her sidekick, she can be a little less, you know, she can be more realistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Little comedy. Right. Before we move on, maybe a word about uh, Volkov, which Hell yeah. does get mentioned here. He gets a name. So cool reference. I, I, I do love that he breaks through all these walls and uh, portals and doors. And because, again, a great use. Uh, he's so massive. He's basically a living battering ram. He's all armored with those scales. So that's a cool use of him to be able to, because the others wouldn't necessarily have that raw power. And um, it's interesting, the name back in the day when he was first named, I came up with uh, just a random name, uh, which ended up being the one that Dark Horse used. I don't know if they came up with the same one independently or just took it from us. But after checking, uh, it turns out it's most likely a Russian name originally and not Borkov with a B-O-R-K-O-F-F, but Volkov. V-O-L-V-O-K. So, um, yeah, just an interesting detail and uh, an interesting character. And I wish we, we'd we been able to see uh, the revenge, the rematch of Gus between him. I know. It was oh, inevitable. <laughs> yeah. And it would have inevitably ended with the cannon arm being fired into his big mouth. <laughs> that's right that's right we talked about that little uh fantasy of ours where he tries to bite the hand again but it's the prosthetic hand and then yeah. he opens wide for- oh. <laughs> that's good stuff yeah that is good stuff it's a really cool use of an apostle power you know you think of an apostle as being impervious uh strong and he uses it to tunnel through a city and, and create an instant escape i mean that's a first of all that's just tactically amazing to have that at your disposal to just tunnel through no matter what the defenses are. And he just does it to make a quick, a quick escape. I just thought it was a really clever, clever idea because Ganeshka thinks they're in his hand, basically. You know, he even has these worthless human guards on the periphery. And you can see Volkov just like ripping right through them. And then he goes <laughs> yeah. through buildings. You see him with like chairs and sofas kicking out of the way. It's just a funny image. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's great. And also the realization that they used the sky to get Charlotte because they knew he couldn't uh, notice it because the fog didn't rise that high up the tower. Yeah. So that's also yeah. very clever. It shows... Basically, it explains how Griffiths outsmarted him, uh, which is something, again, it's done in passing. You know, it's, you, you would have a, it could have been a series where there's a big point made about how uh, so-and-so outsmarted so-and-so, but here it's just done in passing. He realizes it himself, and by doing so, of course, explains it to the reader, and you're like, damn, yeah, that's right. Because it was so high above the ground, Fogg didn't reach there, so he couldn't tell, and that's how he got screwed up. And uh, just the way it's done and the way the story's told, all naturally, very, very smoothly. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And also thematically appropriate, given that Griffith is soaring in the sky. And Ganishka, even though he has his powerful for- form, he still hovers to the ground when mm. he's compared to, to Griffith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's and great. yeah, once again, the, the, the occluded moon we see again, uh, drawing very much drawing attention to itself that it is not full. Yes. Yeah. And that, that final two-page spread, uh, very, very beautiful and uh, available as a, a print from the exhibition, which unfortunately we do not have access yet. Although I do have one myself. 
this two-page spread, it's really stellar. Like, if you just kind of sit at it, look at it from an outsider's perspective, this one of Zod on the moon, like, it, it kind of captures a lot of, of Miura's particular take on fantasy because we have this combination of, like, very classical fantasy elements where the, a princess is being saved by the prince, and yet it's set against this, like, demonic, you know, looking uh, minotaur bat uh, <laughs> carrying her through the sky. You know, this is very cool. Very yeah. berserk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one-horned lion bat hybrid thing refer. <laughs> How does he feel about this whole thing? Well, I mean, uh, he just know. yeah. That's uh, I remember at the time people made jokes that he was basically a taxi man. Now he was just, uh, <laughs> and it's true. It's true. It's a, like a piece it's, of equipment. Yeah, it's an interesting scene that he willingly degraded himself to just being a. Uh, well, a transporter is a guy that takes Griffiths from place A to place B, that will carry a bed, that will do things like that. Just another day at the office, I think. Yeah. yeah. Zod. It also, I think it, it serves to underline, uh, I mean, the limits of Apostles, which, of course, we see in Volume 17. Zod does attempt, I mean, he's granted his wish. He attempts to fight against the, the Falcon of Light, and he gets, I mean, it's not even soundly defeated. He just gets obliterated, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, that's the point where it's very clear that there's only one pass and it's submission. And he does submit and he submits willingly. We see him kneeling. He's the first at the, at uh, Griffith's side when, uh, he returns into the world. He immediately kneels in front of him. And yeah, and that also serves to, to show us that Zod, despite whatever, I wouldn't say virtues, but, Size of him that are not purely bad, he might have. Yeah, he's still just a servant in the end, an apostle, like a disciple of the God Hand. Yep, that's it for me. Over to you, Azil. All right. Next up is uh, the Roar of the Sea. Um, so we open with Guts and his companions having just arrived on a beach. Uh, Isidro is very excited to see the sea for the first time, while Shuke is pensive. Guts is on his feet, but not in a great state. The reason he can be up and about is because the Berserk's armor allows him to bear the pain of his wounds. We learn that he had to rest for close to a month after his battle with Grunbeld, and Shuke recollects that they couldn't remove the armor for days at first, and he kept bleeding out. She's worried that he might die if he were to face another strong adversary like that again. Her thoughts are interrupted by Guts, who is himself melancholic as he watches Casca have fun in the water with Isidro. A peaceful sight with a setting sun in the background that he thought he never would be able to see again. Serpico finds a cabin and they decide to spend the night there. Uh, as Shuriken with the elves treat Guts, we see that he's lost weight and that his wounds are still very severe, even for someone like him. As they eat, Puck and Shuriken talk about Elfhelm and how magicians live among the elves on the Isle of Skellig. And since they broach the topic... Farnese uses the opportunity to make a request. She asks Shuriken to take her as a pupil so that she might learn the art of magic, so that the light of reason might illuminate the darkness of the unknown. Albeit reluctant, Shuriken accepts, which gives Serpico a practically a nervous breakdown. Uh, <laughs> the episode and the volume end on Guts feeling something in his brain, and we cut to the fear of the Skull Knight standing nearby, silhouetted against the full moon. Um, that's a very, very dense, uh, episode with many things, uh, to mention. Uh, the first is that 
feeling peace as the sun sets and being able to sleep soundly at night for Gus shows the importance of Loa's talismans, how big of a deal it is, and it reinforces the fact uh, Gus was right to accept that bargain he made when he accepted to to help Shiruke uh, with uh, Enoch Village. It's not something he did lightly. He did it because it made a big difference. And so that's a bit uh, that reminds us of that, basically. We also see a small detail, which is Gus' hands trembling when we see him on the beach. And then when they're eating, we see him having some kind of strange reaction to the food. That's foreshadowing for what the Skull Knight will tell him in the next episode about the effects of continuously wearing the armor. Uh, there are also a lot of great jokes in this episode. So Puck and Ivarla uh, on the beach with the little antics. Uh, the joke of Puck and Isidro with the mostly black swordsman, slightly white swordsman joke because of his hair. Uh, we've got the Hellfell uh, joke with uh, Isidro and Puck, which is got great visual of some kind of Pyrena plants or, you know, like from Mario. Uh, very nice. Uh, we've, uh, we've got Isidro making fun of Shiruke for being a countryside magic user compared to Skellig magicians. Then being jealous of Farnese becoming a student. Uh, there's also Farnese wanting to start with the big spells right away. So lots of cool humor that is often overlooked. And that's why I want to bring attention to it. Uh, of course, uh, Maybe the biggest deal is uh, Farnese wanting to learn magic. And um, it's broached in an interesting way. We learn that learning magic is difficult usually for an adult because their mind closes itself off to the astral world as they grow up and become rooted in the rules and principles of the physical world. But Farnese's experience with the supernatural means it's not a problem in her specific case. So this ties back nicely to what Puck explains in volume 17, when they're riding on the horse and she can't see him, but then the specters kind of force her uh, to see, well, you know, the horrible stuff around. And it also comes across as a really logical development for her, because as someone traumatized as a child and paralyzed by her, her fear of the darkness and the unknown and what she doesn't understand, uh, she had... She would say armored herself in that fake faith she had in the Holy See that was destroyed. But now that she learned about real magic, which is a process of learning the mysteries of the world, it makes sense for her to go that way as a way to develop her character. So it's very bold, I feel like, at this point in the story to do that. But it also feels completely natural for her to go in that direction and also very interesting for her character to develop that way. So I thought that was really, really great. Uh, there's also a small thing, it's very short, but we see that Serpico helps Guts adapt his gear to the armor, leading to the current system where his bags and straps fall off when it's activated. So it's something that, again, you know, in another series, you could have a whole episode where they show that they're doing something, whatever. Here, Mira doesn't waste time on it. We just get that panel where they explain it. And if you carefully look at how it's done in later episodes and so on, you can actually see how it works. Uh, and it's well done, but it's not something he brings attention to because it's not very important. So, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. And lastly, we learn that Elfhelm lies in the interstice and is normally unreachable by humans but that they'll be able to get there thanks to Puck, which is also, uh, I feel, important. I don't want to talk too much. I've got more stuff to say, but can I get you guys' reaction and results on this episode? I think the first thing that struck me when I when I first this, read this episode 
many years ago was just how Guts could still be walking after the last time we saw him. It was incredible to me. But the way they explained it um, made it less unusual, but I was still shocked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because he did take a lot of damage. And actually, there's a little fact that not everybody might know, but uh, there's a small line that was modified in this episode when it was published as a volume. Oh. Originally, Guts says he that they'd already wasted seven days, and that's why he wanted to keep going. Oh, right. But in the volume, is changed to have him say instead that he's been down for close to a month. So right. it elongates the uh, duration of the time he had to take uh, resting to, yeah, four times more. So I think right. it's meant to show that, yeah, he really got seriously wounded. And it's true that, I mean, it's what I said earlier, we see him getting damaged a lot in the series. But I feel like Mira really wanted to underline that this time it's really, really serious. Right. But he's wearing the armor now. Is it allowing him to walk? Is that what's happening? Or is- Yeah. He talks about the dulling of the pain right. while he's wearing the armor. Yeah. Right. He says he can't, uh, doesn't cut the pain as much as when he's fighting, but wearing it allows him to, yeah, be, just keep walking and such because he doesn't feel the pain as much. So I feel Got like, it. Um, maybe he would still be able to get up. I mean, when he's in the cabin, for example, we see he's not like just falling unconscious or anything like that, but probably right. it gives him more stamina, more energy. Uh, he's able to bear the pain more so that he can walk longer distances, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, uh, how we, you would say a performance, uh, improving device. Yeah. <laughs> Drugs. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this shot of Guts and Shirke, I've probably mentioned this many times on this podcast before. I have a hard time explaining why it matters so much to me. Referring to this one-page shot of Guts returning the hat, yeah. uh, the hat that was blown off. It was a turning point for me and Guts, I'll be honest, as a reader. Like, I liked Guts, you know? I thought he was a cool character, a great protagonist. But, like, I always found myself emotionally more connecting with characters like Griffith and Skull Knight. Like, I could really feel something when they were on the page whereas for guts he was he was leading along he's fine and then i feel so stupid now because like there's something about like the, the the emotion of this page like i think it's just because this is the start of when guts he his body is deteriorating as a result of his basically selfless struggle for casca and there's something about him i just i think it's hard for me to explain but like mm. i never knew how much i admired him until i saw him suffering like this so and he's doing something small. He's he's writing a small wrong. You know, he's doing something nice and small, but it just feels very cool. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say so because, I mean, arguably, he he suffers for Casca and for other things before in the series in volume 23 and so on. I mean, even though there's bad parts, but he does, like, he does get damaged and hurt and, and so on. I feel like... If I were myself to give my feelings, the fact he gets the hat and gives it back to her, yeah. it shows us, it's a small, like you said, a small thing, a small gesture, but it shows us how much uh, ground is covered. Like when you think back to who he was during the Black Soulsman era, uh, he's, he's grown a lot. He's come back from very far. He was very far down the path to self-destruction to just being a cynical, angry, sardonic, I wouldn't say wicked, but uncaring and cold man, trying to bury his feelings so that he can just be a killing machine, 
not caring if other people get killed or trying at least not to care, trying not to be hurt when Colette gets uh, murdered, that kind of stuff. And here he's really, he's back to being a guy who can just give that small token, that small gesture, giving her a hat back, being nice. Being, being friendly. Yeah, exactly. Caring, being a caring person. Yeah. I think he was always emotionally drawn to characters like Shirke, like Teresia, Colette, like you could always tell that he had compassion for those people, but like you said, he was always burying it or always tramping it down. But here he's finally back to the guy we used to know. I mean, it's also very symbolic. You know, you have, you've got that giant buff dude and a small yeah. a little girl. Yeah. And it's so the strong and the weak, the one who has to protect the other. And it's true that you can see, uh, yeah, you can see the difference it makes when he was with Jill when he was with uh, Teresia, what he says, of course, it's different characters in different contexts, but mm -hmm. you can see that he mellows out over time. And again, it's really him coming back from the dark and deep hole into which the eclipse uh, threw him. He was really, really on the at the end of the rope, and he clawed his way back uh, with Puck's help and with just caring about Casca again and all these things, and that made him become, I would, wouldn't say human again, but at least uh, more caring, yeah. A lot of good gut scenes in this part. <laughs> I think it's also the armor, because of the way Mira does this reveal. He kind of occludes, uh, you see guts in kind of a silhouette form in the preceding page, but you get a full-blown shot of him in the new armor here. It's kind of like a debut shot. You know, he was in, in battle before. Yeah. Here you're seeing it in full focus, and it's a Kind of a creepy armor. I would say scary, sharp edges everywhere. Yeah. Not yeah. a very um, friendly looking armor. And he's doing mm -hmm. a friendly thing. So mm -hmm. I think visually it just, just works. Yeah, it does look cursed. I mean, it's a cursed yeah. item and, and it looks apart. There's this point where Guts and Shirky are having this talk. I love this talk because it's like, as you guys have talked about the past five minutes, you know, Guts is finally opening up, you know, sharing things, what's on his mind. He did not normally do that like this. And Shirke is wondering about, thinking about the past month they've been traveling and how he was bleeding every time they would try to take the armor off. And she says at the end of that sequence, uh, she says, I don't know if this is really the, and then she's interrupted by Guts saying, this is nice. It's like she was wondering the trajectory that Guts is on and if it's sustainable or not was kind of like the, the thought that she was on. It was strange because it's not like they have a choice. It's not like there's an easy alternative here, but... I can see her contemplating what the end game is here for Guts. As readers, probably, we're also thinking, you know, if it takes this much to get this far, what, how, what will be left of Guts by the end of this journey is, is to me, the natural next thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's something, uh, I mean, it follows a course. She keeps being worried about him and he keeps pushing the limit. And, uh, I mean, if we jump back to the uh, jump uh, up to the current state of the story, I mean, it reaches uh, its natural conclusion in that Guts really, the armor has taken a toll, and he's really, I mean, it's not sustainable anymore. He couldn't keep using it for very long without, I don't know, either dying or becoming an invalid in a way or another. So it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing to see how it has progressed, and the fact Shrek is concerned at that time, uh, well, came to be true. He looks rough in the cabin and it's partially due to the lighting. I mean, it's intentionally done. It's the, it's the fire that's, that's lighting him. So it's all sharp edged. Yeah. But he's looking 
pretty scrawny as far as guts goes. Uh, I mean, I'd be proud to look like that personally, but for guts, <laughs> it's pre- looking pretty scrawny. Yeah, it's Mura used to show him as buff, but buff mm-hmm. not uh, like with some fat on, right? I mean, low levels of fat, obviously, because he was in superb shape. But here, mm. I feel like he. Uh, on purpose, drew him as if he really lost all the fat and it's only the muscle. And, and yeah, in that case, it shows that he's, uh, losing weight and not being very healthy because of, uh, the predicament he's been in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Azil, you already covered it in your summary, but I thought it was fascinating that this, this beautiful sunset, you know, the sunset to us as readers, as human beings is like a beautiful thing. Uh, there's this shot of them frolicking in this two-page spread of the sunset, and it, it immediately evokes happiness. But you know, to Gus, the sunset means something different, and he specifically addresses it. He said, "I never thought I could watch the sun set and be this calm." So the sunset for Guts really means the start of his long night, and it's every night for him. So yeah, it's a, it's a unique sensation for him to be able to be at rest because um, he has companions and he has the wardings hmm. to keeping the spirits at bay or the specters at bay. So. Hmm. Yeah, and I would say, if I were to say, like, uh, one shot in this uh, episode that's really iconic to me would be that two-page spread with that very melancholic look on his face and especially uh, his eye after we see Casca smiling. Yeah, Casca's eye's smile. really well done. Yeah, and you see Casca smiling and, and that uh, the wave's also very well done. And so, yeah, very, very cool, very cool scene. Uh, you addressed it really well in your summary, so I hesitate to even say anything more, but you did a great job of explaining why Farnese makes this decision to want to learn magic. Because I've <laughs> seen over the years it be kind of uh, – some people have characterized it as like kind of random that she struck out to be a magician. But I don't know. Everything you said, it makes total sense, and I, and I agree. I mean, she's a character who we know since she landed in Gut's lap, even before that – she doesn't want to be helpless. She wants to feel like she has a role in this group. She doesn't like not having a role. And she developed that as Casca's caretaker. But now, to me, that extended into, she addresses it, the philosophy of the magic user to shine a light on the unknown darkness, which is that the darkness that she, as you said, draped herself in through the faith. And that faith was shattered. So she needs, now she wants to learn. Now she's not no longer happy to just you know, go through life not understanding things. Now she wants to be part of a force that, that understands the darkness. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I'm repeating myself, but it feels like the next logical step in the journey where she she began, of course, as this scary little girl, then she shielded herself with that uh, armor of faith, but that was brittle because it was built on false foundations. Then when the events at uh, St. Albion's came, that armor was shattered and she was uh, mesmerized by Guts, who stood against the darkness with his own power while everything else crumbled. So that's why she followed him and she found uh, respite and you know, redemption through taking care of Casca. And when this is what she explains, when she got these, uh, that uh, silver dagger and that chainmail from, from Shiruke, she felt like it had power and it helped her take care of Casca against the trolls. And so learning that magic actually can help understand the world and uh, fight against the darkness, the fear of the unknown, and understand things and develop yourself. Well, she took that that leap, which is also very courageous on her part, especially given her past as a witch hunter. So you take all of that into consideration. It feels like a really 
just a really great development, but also, like I said before, natural one. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, people who don't understand it feel like they should reread the series uh, more attentively. I, I think it's just, if you're reading quickly, you don't take notice of the very incremental steps he makes with Farnese from the moment she appears to her encounter with Guts to everything you just said. So like, mm. it's it's been a long slow incremental journey with her but i feel like every new development has been uh has been right there throughout the whole series yeah uh let's see what else you had mentioned it but uh farnese and shirke talking about how her journey as a magician will be difficult because she was not raised around magic and understanding the astral world that's something as you said connects to what puck said in volume 17 but also uh, when volume 22 starts uh, with Nico and the kids in the forest, it says the kids were the children were the first to notice the changes in the world. Uh, we, we sort of like cribbed an understanding of that as well, that basically kids' minds aren't so rigid. They aren't so attached to the physical world or the, the rules that are associated with things, right? So yeah. that's another echo of that same idea of children whose minds aren't so rigid can understand things like that or sens- be sensitive to them more than adults. Mm. Uh, the last thing I really liked, other than the Skull Knight shot, which I'll get to, is uh, Eva Lira immediately telling Farnese that, by default, that makes you my servant uh, <laughs> to Farnese. That gag keeps going a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because she considers herself to be Shuke's uh, elder, whatever, senpai, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. Of course, it's the, the whole elf thing. Uh, yep. Actually, I've got something to say about that, about the, specifically the translation uh, aspect of this episode. Uh, I mean, I try generally not to pick too much on Dark Horse translation because it's not the point of these rereads, but sometimes it just jumps out to me and I have to say something. And the one thing that really pissed me off uh, in this episode is how they have guts referred to the elves as bugs. Uh, that's early on when they're on the beach and he's talking about how Shirka's selves and uh, the elves managed to get him, uh, well, to heal him. And in Japanese, he uses the word Ochibitachi, which uh, some of our listeners may know the word chibi, which can be used to refer to a small person or animal. Uh, it's not a pejorative word in and of itself. Uh, and here, Gats goes out of his way to act the prefix O, which makes it more polite and friendly. So he's taking about the elves positively because they've helped him recover from his grievous wounds. But to have Dark Horse translated as bugs, I mean, it drastically changes the connotation of his words, right? Uh, in that version, he comes across as dismissive of them at best and uh, at definitely not appreciative. So that's just one example about, among many examples of how they twist the portrait of the character with uh, that kind of shoddy work. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I just don't appreciate it. I also feel, I mean, it also ruins the following joke too. When uh, Ivara tells him not to lump her with Puck. If you read it the way Dark Horse translate it, it's like Guts is like begrudging the help that he got from the elves. Yeah. Right. But it's the opposite. He's actually honoring them. He's saying basically, oh, <laughs> I can't do it in English, but like revered, revered elves, revered little ones, that kind of thing. Instead of... These jerk bugs. Uh, but yeah, he's he's being nice. And the joke for Ivalira is that she and Puck are related in this way, that they are both being called by the same thing. But 
the way Dark Horse looks at it, it's like Eva Lyra doesn't like being called a bug, just like Puck. Really, she just doesn't want to be lumped with a Puck at all, period. <laughs> yeah. And it's also an aspect where um, she calls him Chibikuri, uh, Ano Chibikuri. So that's a pun on, uh, a pun on another meaning of the word uh, Chibi, which is used to describe uh, super deformed manga characters, you know, who have small bodies mm-hmm. and oversized heads. So curry in this case means chestnut in, in Japanese. And so the jokes, and so, yeah, because that's his form as a curry pack. Uh, and, and then the jokes on the following page are also not very well conveyed. Uh, is that whole, I mean, it, it, it tends to be the case in general. Uh, the jokes are difficult to convey because there's so many layers to them uh, that can't be properly conveyed in English that it, it becomes difficult to do. But uh yeah, in this case, it's just surprising. And I'll go back even to Volume 1, because in Volume 1, they have also Guts uh, referred to Puck consistently as a bug. And he does call, they call him a bug once uh, when he's in his jail cell and says he wouldn't go out of his way to save a, a bug. He uses the word uh, Mushikara, so it's like an insect. But then he also calls him Chibi. And that translates that as bug. Mm. But Vargas also calls Puck Chibi. And then they translated as little one. So <laughs> there's a, a, a case, I think it's just beco- before Vargas gets uh, taken by Zondark and killed. You've got uh, uh, Guts called Puck Chibi and it's Bug. And then like three pages later, Vargas says, oh, that small one. And it's, uh, and it's Chibi also. So it becomes a bit stupid because it's the same word, but depending on what character says it, it's translated completely differently. Yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah. So um, I know I've, I've been uh, a bit long with this, but yeah, it's just, I don't know, it just annoys me because. Oh, yeah. It just, the characterization of Guts becomes that of a brutish and mean guy. So, uh, even though, like we said in this episode, it shows him like the, all the progress he's made on that front. So it kind of negates it and it shouldn't be. And I find that, uh, I don't know, I find that stupid. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned it. If it were any other point, moment, I would be like, yeah, kind of doesn't really change the meaning. But this is kind of a, a small turning point for Guts where he is he's being more reverent to his friends, to, the, to the, those that are smaller than him, you know? Yeah. So it's a moment for him to really acknowledge their helpfulness. And they're just kind of squashing that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's disappointing. And I mean, that's just, honestly, like I said, that's one example, and I'm not going over all of them, but there's, there's always more. Like, for example, another obvious one is, uh, when they're in the cabin and Shuk and Gus are talking about his wounds and who Gus says, yeah, he feels a lot better. Shuke replies, Uso. Uso means, uh, lie in Japanese. And Dark Horse has to say, I lie. But, uh, I mean, why does this matter? Because it's obviously, she's obviously talking about guts. She's saying yeah. it's a lie that what guts said. And again, it's, I mean, you could say, oh, who cares? She lies. She lies. In this case, they could have translated it by it's a lie. And then it would have been a bit ambivalent and the reader could have understood by himself that it meant obviously guts. But they decided to, to have her say she lies and, like, if you know Shiroke's character, she's a very prim and proper, top student, head of the class kind of girl. She she wouldn't lie and then think to herself, I'm lying. That's, that's just stupid. I think it actually reveals a more a bigger misunderstanding about who actually is speaking. Yeah, it, yeah, it like, could be, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. If you look at the transition, it goes, Shirake says to Guts, you've made progress, but you still must not push yourself. Guts says, yeah, I feel a lot better. The following line in sequence is this inner thought uh, that's supposed to be Shirke's. Yeah. Uh, but I think they might have internalized that as Guts, and then Shirake responds on the other side of the page. It's confusing. It doesn't well, need to be that confusing. That would be even more yeah. crazy because it's obviously an internal thought. So. Yeah, with Shirake's face being in focus. Yep. Oh, well. Disappointing. The thing is, like, you guys have heard this. I say this many times over. Like, Dark Horse is the official English translation of Berserk. It it doesn't make it perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination. It is the the only one you can reach for, though, that's officially licensed transition of Berserk. So it puts us as fans in kind of a difficult spot where we both have to support the series and say you should support it. At the same time, you got to call out when they fuck up. Yeah, it's uh, and I mean, translating Japanese is uh, is difficult. It's not something, even though people nowadays are crazy about uh, machine translations, stuff you can get from Google or other services. It remains, it's an art. You know, it's not something you can do uh, easily, and it's especially difficult between Asian languages and Western languages. It's not like translating uh, English to Spanish. So, yeah, there's difficulties and it takes time. And what it comes down to is that publishers like Dark Horse don't have a big budget and they pay their translators uh, probably very, very low fees. So, yeah, you know, you get the quality you pay for. And if you pay nothing, you get bad quality. Well, to give uh, Puella an extra shout out, I I really like it when she translates episodes and provides little footnotes that give the context for a particular word and she explains why she chose it. So as a non-Japanese speaker, Western uh, dum-dum, it's very helpful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, I feel like you could say, I've I've said so a few times, but she's uh, definitely the most important member of this community. Without her, I mean, half the stuff I myself say, it's something she's explained to me, you know, in the past or something like that. Because, again, where, when you don't have that deep knowledge of the Asian languages, you know, uh, kanji, hanzi, however you want to call it, it's, uh, there's some stuff that's difficult to, to get. Even if you study in Japanese for five years at the university, there's some things you might not understand that someone who's just Asian and have grown up with a language and that culture will understand uh, more easily just because that's how it is. In the same way that I understand some French stuff that even someone who studied French for 10 years wouldn't get because mm-hmm. it's just, it's a reference to a reference to a reference or it's something that's culturally ingrained. Yeah, language and culture. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just difficult. Right. I should have mentioned at the start of this episode, but uh, this is the start of the chapter of Falconia. We just ended the, um, boy, what is it? Millennium Falcon chapter of the record of the Holy Evil War? I can't remember how. Yeah, that's the one. That's the Mm -hmm. one. So now we're in Falconia, and that will stretch all the way until we see Falconia, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, Volume 34, I believe. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, actually, what Mira does, because he starts the chapter of Falconia before... Long before we get to Falconia, that's a, mm-hmm. actually, it might be more accurate to say the chapter of getting to the existence of Falconia. So, and as soon as we do see Falconia, the chapter ends. <laughs> so yeah. it's a, it's an interesting thing he does. I mean, you could, uh, I, I've often wondered about it and it kind of goes the same for the chapter of the Elf Island mm-hmm. where it, 
starts before we get there, then we get there. And I feel like it would have probably ended pretty soon uh, in terms of where we are at the story right now. And that uh, they might still have stayed on the island a while longer, but it would still have ended and become, uh, you know, a new chapter would have uh, begun uh, looking towards the future and some things that would happen in the future. So it's just, yeah, I would I would have been interested in uh, hearing Mira's reasoning for how he named them and how he uh, decided to cut parts of the stories, that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, Falconia, the chapter of Falconia is really how Griffith unified all those forces into one cohesive, you know, f- force. All the human forces, the Holy Sea forces took care of some of those guys, established himself as a force and ultimately made Falconia. Mm-hmm. What's weird, though, is that when we see Falconia and see how it operates, we're in the chapter of Elf Island at that point. Yeah. That's a little weird. Yeah. We, it really does end with the reveal of Falconia. That's uh, the last yeah. episode of that chapter is uh, we see the city and then right. it cuts. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, there's no real logic for it. Uh, I, w- I would say it's a forward-looking chapter title. You know what I yeah. mean? Like that was my thought as well. Yeah, like almost like it's advertising. Yeah, yeah, but it's, like- it's used inconsistently. If that's the rule, so I don't know. Mm. Yeah, and it should be mentioned that Falconia in this case means the capital city of the Falcon. Mm-hmm. And I I remember because at the time when it started. Uh, some people didn't understand what it referred to. Or well, like Falconia, is it gonna be like the the kingdom, or is it gonna be something? And you're like, no, actually, if you if you look at the kanji, it means a city of the falcon. I don't remember much about thinking or discussing or debating the chapter title, but it's obvious in retrospect now what it's referring to. But Falconia being a thing, it felt so. I would imagine it would feel so distant to us back then. Yeah. In this area era of the series, when Griffith is still, you know, battling for control of Wyndham, you know, it seems like a capital would be so distant at that time. But yeah, for sure. I mean, it is. It is. When we start on the beach, we are, I mean, far from getting there. Even though we get there actually more quickly than than we think. That's mm-hmm. also because Mira manages to pull a twist uh, with the how it comes to be, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, you're like even even when. Uh, I mean, even when Ganishka is uh, fighting Griffith's forces in his final form, you're still like, I mean, how are they going to get to Falconia, right? I mean, what's 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 the thing? And it comes in, a, I would say, in a surprising reveal. Yeah, just swap the layer orders in Photoshop, and it's been there all along, just unchecked. <laughs> <laughs> it was just waiting. Yep. Uh, it also, I think it also uh, set a little bit of an argument at the time, because there was kind of an argument between... Hawk and Falcon to, oh, to yeah. talk about Taka for Griffiths. And some people among which I was were like, well, it's Millennium Falcon. So it makes more sense to use the word Falcon. And some people were like, eh, in English, Hawk sounds better. And we. Does it? Does it? Is it just because it's monosyllabic? Yeah, it just sounds the same, basically. It's just the real story was, well, I'm used to this word, so I'm going to yeah, keep using this word. Just like people for other stuff like saying Gatsu instead of Gats. And so, and when Falconia came about, we were like, well, now it's Falconia, Millennium Falcon at some point. I mean, it, you, you're going to have to admit that it's, uh, you know, it's weighing in favor on one of one option yeah. and not the other. Yeah, it's definitely not Hawkonia. <laughs> it's never been Hawkonia. Uh, it's really because so and so already bought the wall scroll that says Band of the Hawk. Now they can't change it, 
because it's already on their wall, so they're going to stick with Hawk. Yeah, I mean, it's a small thing, but again, if you if you just look at how things are and what the official names are in the in the manga, you're like, eh, makes more sense to go with Falcon. Yep. Well, that's it for this time. Uh, we'll be back in a little bit for uh, Volume 28. Actually, before we go to Volume 28, we'll probably have a standalone episode. Um, then we'll go into the 28 reread. So look forward to that in about a month. You mean you don't want to hear me bitch about the sound effects? No. Um, no. Why, is there something more to say about sound effects? I can I can go on about everything. Nah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> SFX, Sound of Silence. No, yeah, I was actually talking about the, the ones on the beach where, where they've got the Zaza and the, you know, they transliterate it in footnote as Zaza, which is, uh, uh-huh. which I find stupid, but, uh, I'll, I'll save that, um. Isn't it your name backwards though? What's the problem? What's the problem? Uh, oh, yeah. Some guy actually, <laughs> some guy once, uh, saw that because I had, uh, a picture of the skull knight with that sound effect because he's he's on the beach, so there's that sound effect. It was uh-huh. like I thought it was your name backwards, and that's what it meant. I was like, oh, it's like a complete coincidence. Wow. But uh, you know, in Japanese, it's just the sound of uh, well, that kind of sound, sound of waves, the sound of uh, fire, or the sound of static on an analog TV, uh, which uh, wow. younger listeners might not know what it's mean. But yeah, that's that kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Thank and, you for that. Yeah, yeah, I do my best, and um, and yeah, they just transliterate it as Zaza, which is, I mean, it doesn't convey any information. You, you know, the guy who sees that has no idea what it means, and I just find it stupid and just a small thing. But and then you get the seagulls calling, and they translate that as Kern, 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 uh, which is again, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what's the point of this. It reminds me that I, I told Chris Warner 15 years ago that it was stupid to do that and that they should take care of sound effects uh, differently. And he did not listen to me. And, and that's what we get. Kern, Kern, and Zaza. Well, I'll end on this note. <laughs> You've already opened the door, man. <laughs> the most that I will say about the sound effects is, first of all, I I like that they do something with them, even if it is nonsensical and done... What's the word? Illogically, they don't stick to the rules that they set. For example, sometimes they will simply phoneticize it. Uh, they will just make the sound that the katakana makes, and that's all they will mm. do. Other times, they'll try to transliterate it into an equivalent for English. Like when Isidro jumps into the water, uh, the sound effect is actually zabu, I think it is. But they just make it bloosh, which is more like what you would see in English if it was a comic book. But right. that's not a rule that they use consistently. I just kind of would rather they just do the katakana, and then if people are confused, that's their fucking problem is kind of how I would approach that. And uh, yeah. I, I think ideally, to really appreciate what the sound effects are doing, you kind of have to know what they're trying to convey, what the Japanese yeah. uh, onomatopoeia language is, mm. which is not something that's easily understood or even conveyed. So I yeah. think you have to have like some kind of glossary in the back for every single one. And I think that's which some manga do do. Yeah, right? do do. And, and that's what I uh, suggested to, to Warner back then. I said, the only way for it to be useful, to actually be useful to a reader, is not to put it on the page, which, basically, by the way, is, uh, I mean, it's ugly, right? It's kind of a distraction. You put a glossary yes. at the back and you explain, well, this means it's the sound of the waves. This is the right. sound of someone jumping in water. This is the sound of something. And I mean, the, the, for the reader who cares, 
you're like, okay, I understand what it means. I can look look to it. Sure, I have to go back to the glossary at the back. It's it's bothering, but it's better than being put on the page, at least in my my opinion. And uh, I agree. Yeah. You, well, in in time, your mind would attune to what that means. You wouldn't exactly. have to keep referring to it. You know. Right. You'd see the characters. Yeah. And and if you see, for example, if you see, I don't know, fire roaring, and you get the zaza sound, and you see a zaza sound. Finally, when you get to see at the weather, you're like, hmm. It sounds like this. And when you're thinking to what the, the fire roaring sounds like in your head, you can feel like, hey, actually, it kind of does sound like the waves. Okay, I get what they're going for. And then you mm-hmm. you actually get an understanding of the language. So yeah. and the same goes for like, I don't know, swords uh, clanging against each other or whatever. So that was my little rant, my final rant. I'm done. Dark Horse, there's still time. There's still time to fix it. <laughs> Volume 41, come on. They probably started down the road of translating them and then realized to do this correctly would require a lot more work. And then they're like, let's just do the easy, easiest possible path where we're technically translating the sound effects, but we're not actually doing it in a logical way. Yeah. And, and I mean, like you said, sometimes, like, for example, on that page, the first page of the episode Roar of the Sea, I mentioned uh, at the bottom, uh, Isidro is uh, stepping on the wet sand and they do a plash thing, which does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a decent replication of what the sound would be like. Mm-hmm. Not at all what the Japanese uh, sound effect says, but uh, it's fine. Yeah, the one that comes to mind for me is dokun or doki is also, which is a heartbeat mm-hmm. sound effect, mm-hmm. which you can, it, in usage in a sentence, it really means like excitement or it could also be nervousness. But it can also just simply mean a heartbeat sound, you know, depending on how it's being used in a sentence. Yeah. As yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot. There's a, yeah. there's a lot of stuff like that. Yep. And uh, this, this is coming from a guy, myself, who had to be pointed out that in Vagabond, Viz actually translates the sound effects visually. Like if it says slice, they'll just the, the letters S-L-I-C-E will be on the page. I just never even noticed it. I never even yeah. bothered to notice that's how they do the sound effects. They got a budget and they got the original artwork for that, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know how they do it. They do it in a way that feels, to me, it felt seamless. But I know many people hated the way that they did that. I don't really oh, care. Really? Personally. Yeah. I thought it was pretty Didn't good. Didn't bother me. I, I've seen some series where uh, people will edit the art to mm-hmm. make the sound effects on the page. Well, that's what I'm talking about. And Vagabond yeah. will do that. Viz does that. Yeah. But I mean, when you have to remove some part and you have to fill it. Like you have to redraw on the art or you have to cover the art to do your sound effect that makes sense in English. It can be it can be pretty bad. I've seen some stuff that was like, uh, yeah, that was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. So I, I could understand why some people wouldn't like it. Sure. Yeah. To me, it's just, is it obtrusive and, and does it eliminate the art on the page? Like that would be the two deciding factors for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, sound effects. Love them. Hate them. They're there either way. <laughs> I think they're pretty cool, and they, they add to the to the how to say dynamism of the of the pictures and the yeah. story. But uh, yeah, it's I mean that's one of the things. Or for example, you look at when uh, Volkov is uh, bursting through the wall. They add a little uh, crunk at the bottom, like on the actual image. Does it add anything to for the reader? Like, does it improve the experience of the reader to see Kronk when he's in his bursting through a wall? Will it make Kronk sound to burst through a wall? I, I mean, bong. Yeah, I Maybe mean, it's like turn down for what? It's just uh, I don't know. It's just I, I don't feel like it adds value to me. It's detrimental, but again, no one's asked my opinion. 
when he's plowing through it, it says douche, 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 douche on the page. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I bet there's someone who's like, what the fuck this sound would make? Huh? I'll just say douche. Douche, 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 so, douche, douche. Yeah. Then you got a zish and a gish. This is the best episode. <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's it. I'm cutting it off. We're turning uh, it off. No more sound effect talk. <laughs> we'll be back in a month. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Thanks. everyone. Bye. Bye. If you liked our podcast and want to hear more, then go over to SkullNight.net. We've got an international community with more than 20 years of Berserk history. You can also support the translation efforts we have over at Patreon.com SKNet. All donations there go towards the work of our resident translator, Puella, who's working on a ton of interesting stuff, including all of those Mirror Tribute comics, interviews, stuff like detailed explanations of Japanese words that are used throughout the series, anecdotes about artwork, merchandise. We're also up to 12 mini-podcasts, which are monthly short episodes from Azil and I on a bunch of different Berserk-related topics. I think the last one we did was on the Dragon Slayer, uh, Casca, we have one on all the different Berserk video games. Also, just a ton of non-Berserk stuff. If you like our podcast and want more, these are made just for you. Not to be missed, so go check it out at patreon.com sknet. Speaking of which, I wanted to take a moment and thank those that have continued to contribute to our gold tier. Gold tier members get immediate access to all translations and all the content that we have, which eventually trickle down to the silver tier and the bronze tier. Those include Piran, M, Spacey Louse, Rombad, Dark Link, Dirtiest M, Walter, Modal Eternal, Thomas Lambert, Milbs, Jason, Asmer, Guts, Isha, and Woosh. Thank you to everybody for your continued support.